You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Welcome to Belaboured, episode 114. Before we get started, I'd like to give a special thanks to our supporting members who have signed up to give monthly donations of $3, $5, or even $10 to keep Belaboured going. For your $5 a month, we send you a fabulous Belaboured tote bag, and for $10 a month, you get the tote bag plus an online subscription to Descent. Through the end of this year, we're going to be fundraising for Belabored. We have been doing this now for three years. I sort of can't believe that still. And we've been free the whole time. And of course, we are still free, but your small donations really do a lot to help us keep us bringing you labor news, discussions that matter, reports from the picket lines around the country, and special events. To become a member, you can go to descentmagazine.org slash belabored-membership. You can also make a one-time donation at the Descent website and let us know that you want it to support Belabored. Thank you again for all your support, for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends, as well as donating. And here's two, three more years. Today, we bring you one of those reports from the picket line and the almost picket line, as it were, updates from the Harvard dining workers strike and from the Chicago teachers tentative deal that put a potential strike on hold. But first, the news. In the U.S. this week, we've been hearing a lot of talk about sexism and politicians and what we can do about it. But across the Atlantic, the women of Poland decided that the best way to fight back against sexist laws, specifically a proposal to radically expand the country's already intense restrictions on abortion, was to withhold their labor. On October 3rd, thousands of women across the country went on strike. The black protests saw streets filled with striking people dressed in black, some of them holding signs with a logo of a uterus flipping the bird. Care workers who had a hard time walking away from their responsibilities wore black ribbons in solidarity, and businesses closed down. Pictures flooded the internet, a powerful reminder of the value and power of women's work. Inspired by a similar strike by Icelandic women in 1975, the strike came about when organizers realized that just protesting was not actually enough to stop the proposed law by the country's ruling right-wing party. The proposed law would have totally banned abortion, which is already restricted in Poland to pregnancies caused by rape, incest, or which threaten the health of the parent or where the fetus is likely to be severely ill. The law would have included prison terms for those who received or performed an abortion. Marta Lempart, one of the organizers, said that the idea for the strike spiraled rapidly from a Facebook group to coordinated conversations across the country with organizers. Some 200,000 are estimated to have taken part, including 20,000 marchers in the capital. The strike evoked, in addition to the Icelandic action, the ideas of the Wages for Housework movement, linking reproductive and productive labor in using the strike as a weapon to fight for women's rights and all people's rights to control their own lives. And it worked. The bill was crushed in Parliament after the strike. But the leader of the ruling party still has the law on his agenda and told reporters, quote, We will strive to ensure that even in pregnancies which are very difficult, when a child is sure to die, strongly deformed, women end up giving birth so that the child can be baptized, buried, and have a name, end quote. The strike organizers aren't giving up either, though. Lempart told reporters that a second National Day of Action is planned for October 24th, the anniversary of the Icelandic strike. And she said, quote, I'm not happy about having to protest about such simple things, but I am happy that maybe this government will be overthrown by women. 
and maybe the next, and the next. I want all governments to be scared of women. So as if you needed another reason to feel icky about eating at McDonald's, workers are taking action against an epidemic of sexual abuse in the fast food industry, starting with the Golden Arches and also targeting other top brands for some pretty stomach-churning workplace behavior. The Fight for 15 campaign has taken on McDonald's with federal complaints in several states alleging systematic sexual harassment at work, filed with the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, um, and they describe incidents involving unwanted sexual touching, offers of pay in exchange for sexual favors, as well as threats and intimidation. Some said their managers offered promotions or extra money in exchange for sex and retaliated against those who refused. Complaints would go ignored, and often workers eventually lost hope that anything could be done. And they had very good reasons to suspect that nothing would be done. The campaign has released survey data showing rampant rates of sexual abuse in many forms among both men and women working in fast food jobs across the country. The survey of over 1,200 workers showed that about 40% reported experiencing some kind of workplace sexual harassment. For instance, about a quarter had faced, quote, sexual teasing, jokes, remarks, or questions. And that sometimes escalated up to uh, about a quarter uh, reporting being accosted with unwanted hugging or touching. Nearly one-fifth experienced invasive sexually explicit questions about themselves or their co-workers. And uh, many of them suffered huge ripple effects from the sexual harassment. Nearly half said that the, the abuse that they had suffered took a toll on their health. This includes harmful effects like depression and uh, emotional distress, anxiety, and of course diminished performance at work. The survey also found that black and Latino workers were especially vulnerable to these ripple effects and many were forced to either quit or change their schedules deliberately to avoid the abuse. Not surprisingly, many opted to put up with it because about 4 in 10 reported that they felt that they needed to accept it because they could not afford to lose their job. And this is sort of the evil nexus between low-wage work and poverty and coercion and abuse at work. Crucially, though, there may be in the future a legal avenue for them to seek justice via unionization. The complaints deal with workplace abuse and discrimination at an individual and workplace level, but they're also part of a broader strategy by the Fight for 15 to force McDonald's to take legal responsibility as a so-called joint employer. There's also, as we've reported before, separate litigation pending at the National Labor Relations Board, along with various other civil lawsuits that seek to hold McDonald's accountable under federal labor law as a joint employer along with a franchise operator that could, if they're allowed to then form a collective bargaining agreement with McDonald's, open the door for key labor protections, um, union contracts, and full-scale unionization could be key to combating sexual harassment and other labor abuses in the job, or at the very least, giving workers the political and economic leverage to secure higher wages and better working conditions. But we are a long way from there, and as we can see from the complaints, it remains a monumental struggle just getting individual workers to break the silence and come forward, and they're just starting to organize on this front. So for every worker who comes forward with another harrowing tale of abuse in the job, others may be encouraged to follow. 
Last episode, we talked about the issues at stake and a potential Chicago Teachers Union strike. Well, this week, we bring you the news that a last-minute tentative deal called off that strike, and it looks pretty interesting. So to fill us in on the details of the Chicago Teachers Strike that almost was, we have Micah Utrecht, a former guest on our podcast, the author of Strike for America about the last Chicago Teachers Strike. And uh, Micah, thank you for um, fitting me into your busy schedule today. Thanks for having me on. So um, we had Sarah Chambers on last week to tell us about what the issues at stake were in the strike and what was, or the potential strike and what was outstanding. So tell us how dramatically this went down. I understand there was like a last minute deal at the last possible moment on Monday night. Yeah, I, along with uh, hundreds of thousands of CTS students probably and tens of thousands of CTU members, was up late, you know, biting my nails on uh, Monday night, wondering if there was going to be a teacher strike. They were negotiating literally up until uh, almost midnight. I think Karen Lewis made the announcement at 11.52, so it was highly dramatic. So what is in the deal that managed to call off the strike? So the deal, like any union contract, is a mixed bag. And one of the things that is uh, notable about this union's current leadership is that they don't try to pretend that contracts are somehow perfect documents or whatever. And so if you hear the union leadership talking about it, they will fully admit that it is far from perfect. But that said, there were a couple really important provisions uh, in the contract negotiations. The district was uh, really intent on eliminating their contributions to CTU members' pensions. They pick up 7% of the 9% of the CTU members' checks that go to pensions. And they they're all going to get rid of that, and the CTU stopped that from happening. There will be an elimination of the pension pickup for uh, new members of the union. And that sets up warning bells for a lot of people. They think of two-tier yeah. pensions. Uh, but in this case, teachers have assured me uh, that they don't think that's a big of a deal because there is added uh, money that goes into their biweekly checks that will make up for that uh, lost pension. There's other important things, like they negotiated an aid for primary school classrooms that have more than 32 students in them. Uh, they've also yeah. uh, negotiated a cap on classroom sizes. Uh, and they also negotiated, very importantly, a cap on the net number of charter schools in the district, which yeah. they made a big deal about charter schools being the primary way of introducing privatization into public education. So those are some of the contracts provisions. It's worth noting that one of the things that sets CTU apart from other unions is that they have made their contract negotiations and their union organizing in general about more than what is in the contract. They've they right. made this about reversing austerity in Chicago. And so they had demanded uh, $200 million from a fund that's called the Tax Increment Financing Fund in Chicago, right. which is uh, this very wonky-sounding term uh, and is a wonky-sounding thing, but sort of nefarious uh, way of yeah. collecting money. Uh, it's money that is supposed to be used to uh, fix blighted communities uh, but instead ends up being uh, totally controlled by the mayor as kind of slush fund and is often used to give away money to corporations in the city, um, like United Airlines yeah. or the Board of Trade. Um, and so they had demanded that $200 million of the surplus of this fund, of money that wasn't already earmarked for something else, be given over entirely to CPS. 
to fund yeah. everything that needed to be funded, and they were demanding a $500 increase of spending per student in Chicago. Yeah. And they didn't get that full $200 million, but they did get, last I heard, was a $75 million from it. And that was something yeah. that you they couldn't negotiate in their contract itself, uh, but that they had come to an agreement with the mayor about. On, on the, the announcement that was made at midnight, Karen Lewis was asked about these tips, and uh, they said, you know, did you come to an agreement on this? She said, well, we don't have it in the contract, but there's a rumor that this money could be being released to CPS. And uh, yeah. sure enough, uh, it was announced a few minutes later uh, by the mayor that that money was being given over to CPS. So that's a really important thing that they forced the mayor to give up this money, which yeah. he probably did not want to give up, even yeah. though that wasn't part of what they could even like legally negotiate in their union contract. What brought the mayor and CPS to the table on this when it looked to all concerned, certainly to us watching here from from in New York, like it was going to be another strike. What do you think it is that that brought them to the table? Well, the most obvious thing is that Mayor Emanuel is the weakest he has been since he took office in 2011. The strike in 2012 was the first real defeat that he suffered in office. And since then, things have pretty much uh, gotten worse for him. Uh, I mean, we had uh, the mayoral election last year that was forced into a runoff, which nobody was expecting. Uh, we had the uh, Laquan McDonald scandal, which was the yeah. videotape that was suppressed by the city that showed a young African-American teenager getting shot 16 times. And there was clearly right. an effort by the mayor's office, if not even the mayor himself, to suppress this tape and suppress it long enough that he could get past election day before it was released. So uh, the mayor's approval ratings are really in the tank. I think the last I heard was 27%. So he's just in rough shape. And the TCU, because they are pushing this broad social justice agenda, continues to poll extremely well among uh, the citizens of Chicago, especially CPS parents, which is always worth mentioning because... These are the people, the CPS parents, who are the ones who get put out, right, when teachers walk off the job yeah. or go on strike. They can, in some way, throw people's lives into chaos. Even yeah. despite that, these parents say that they back the teachers over our manual. That was the case yeah. in 2012. That was the case over the school closing fight that happened in 2013. And that's the case yeah. again this year. Yeah. So he was really in a... In a rough position. He had no choice. There's also rumors that uh, I've heard third hand. I don't know if they're actually true or not. But I've heard rumors from multiple people that someone from Hillary Clinton's campaign had called Ron Emanuel's office and, 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 and you know, basically said you really have to sell the strike. This is a, would be a politically costly thing to happen right now around election time. Which is yeah. also what happened the last time which was in 2012 when, right when um, Barack Obama was up for re-election. So uh, this, this mm-hmm. is a, sort of a sweet spot in the uh, election year, the presidential election year. It seems to be treating the CCU <laughs> yeah. pretty well. Two last questions then. What, um, where are things now? Um, has the contract been voted on yet? When is that expected to happen? And then what lessons are there in this for other unions around the country? Second question, I'll say that teachers' unions are uh, not always like other unions in that the overlap between the teacher's interest and the student's interest is perhaps like clearest there. And so it is maybe the easiest within teachers' unions to push for a kind of campaign that that argues for, you know, both helping students and helping uh, teachers as a kind of social justice vision that encompasses both. But that said, 
there are plenty of lessons that other unions can take from this, most notably uh, what can happen when you really treat democratic engagement within your union uh, very seriously, when you make that a priority. I mean, this is a union who, in 2012 and this time around, despite a state law being changed to try to prevent them from striking, that went from a simple majority of voting members uh, being required to authorize the strike to 75% of all members being required to authorize the strike. They right. carried that out. They, the whole thinking behind that law was that they would never be able to achieve that. But because the union made themselves into this more uh, democratic, bottom-up organization, uh, they were able to easily meet that threshold both times. Right. And, they, and the only reason that they take that kind of level of democracy seriously is because they have a caucus within the union that took over in 2010 uh, that took that stuff seriously. Um, right. And then, of course, the other the other piece of it is making the strike about something that's much bigger than themselves. I mean, teachers, in particular, are so demonized right now, and they're they're seen as greedy. And teachers' unions are seen as this way to sort of screw public school students that, uh, and and just to enrich themselves. But that narrative is not caught on in Chicago. As I said, the overwhelming numbers of CPS parents back the union over Rahm Emanuel. Um, so when yeah. you use the union as being part of an anchor of a broader social movement, uh, you can have things uh, like this happen. Um, so regarding the question of uh, what's next, it, it's worth mentioning that uh, this we don't necessarily know that there won't be a strike because uh, what was reached on uh, you know, the late Monday, early Tuesday, was a tentative agreement between the Board of Education and the uh, union bargaining team. They still have to take that contract to the union membership and to their uh, first to their elected body, which is called the House of Delegates, and then to right. their membership. And right. uh, the, the membership will decide that they think the contract is garbage. That they think that they should either re reopen negotiations or even potentially that they should go on strike. I don't have any yeah. sense of whether or not that's actually going to happen. I know that a lot of teachers I've talked to have been unhappy about some parts and happy about other parts. So it's sort of yeah. too early to say whether what's going to happen, but it looks like um, that the, the House of Delegates vote uh, on the contract is going to happen uh, next week on the 19th. Um, so yeah. that will be the first step, and then after the House of Delegates sees it, uh, the, mem the entire membership will have to vote on it. Thank you so much. That was our Chicago strike correspondent, Micah Utrecht, the author of Strike for America. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Farm workers in Florida are wiping the smile off of Wendy's face with a nationwide boycott against the fast food giant. The Coalition of Immokalee Workers, a collective of workers and organizers based in the Florida tomato fields, is leading a nationwide campaign to pressure the fast food giant to participate in its worker-led social responsibility scheme, which tries to link corporate accountability with labor justice. Wendy's is just the latest corporation that the group has taken on in its years-long battle for justice in the fields. It is now pressuring the corporation to sign on to its fair food program, which has been championed for years as a model quasi-union-like collective arrangement uh, in which uh, workers 
uh, are laboring under a common set of standards and the growers have committed um, and are legally bound to a contract that ensures that they will pay a certain amount and also pass down a wage premium as well as uphold basic uh, you know, fair workplace standards, um, ensure health and safety, standards are upheld, etc. Um, Wendy's has sought to avoid this through all sorts of clever tactics, including rolling out its own uh, corporate social responsibility plan that offers an alternative standard, which is, um, not surprisingly, completely voluntary um, and does not have any real enforceable standards uh, and has no worker-led enforcement system or oversight. Uh, so workers have called this a corporate whitewash, more or less. Um, they've also sought to circumvent the fair food program by sourcing tomatoes in Mexico. Ironically, that's where many farm workers in the U.S. are from, but uh, they are further distanced from public scrutiny by going to um, corporations that are tied to factory farms in Mexico that are incidentally also linked to uh, epidemic wage theft, uh, various abuses, and um, extremely brutal conditions at uh, farm labor camps uh, that are conditions that are much, much worse than what the Coalition of Mockley Workers is seeking, and even worse in many cases than what uh, ordinary farm workers across the U.S. experience. And now the Coalition of Mockley Workers is calling on consumers nationwide to boycott Wendy's as a show of solidarity with the Florida farm workers. And they recently held a summit in Florida uh, to strategize with their ally groups about how to bring this message to communities. They're engaging a lot of student activists on college campuses. It's all part of a broader movement to create a more coherent, equitable, and healthful food system that deals not only with environmental concerns and concerns about consumer safety and health, but also deals with uh, labor conditions in the fields and is opening a new conversation across the country about how to bring justice for food workers from farm to table. Hopefully, boycotting the red pigtails will be the undoing of one more toxic link in the corporate food chain. So as we record this, we are now in week two of the big strike on campus at Harvard, where the dining workers are taking on one of the country's most elite institutions to fight for a livable wage and to protect their health benefits. The massive inequality on display on the picket line reveals some of the social dynamics of higher education today as both an industry and a social institution. Uh, but surprisingly, workers have gotten an enormous amount of community support from both students as well as fellow workers um, across the community. Uh, the basic demands are a $35,000 annual wage per year as well as year-round work so that people have stability across the year. Right now, they are basically seasonal workers um, because of the academic schedule. And more importantly, they're fighting to protect their current health plans uh, because they say that their uh, out-of-pocket costs will soar as a result of what Harvard is proposing if they get their druthers. Um, I talked to Keisha Pugh. She's a general services worker. After the strike first started, and they were just starting to get out on the picket line, and here's what she had to say. Tell me why you're out there today, and uh, tell me who's with you, and uh, what you're hoping will happen today. We're here at Harvard University. There's probably like a hundred of us out here. People have been out here since 4.30 this morning. We have been negotiating with Harvard since May for a new contract. Um, two of the main issues 
health care and wages, health care being the number one. Right now, we have affordable health care. Harvard wants to shift the cost over to us by changing our health care, where a family plan, we would have to pay $6,000 up front. Then Harvard would kick in after $6,000 as part-timers and making the lowest wages at Harvard and working seven months out of the year would be outrageous. It's a very big financial burden on us. And what they're saying is that this is the best they can do. And again, working at the wealthiest university in the world with a $350 billion endowment they got in one year. They want to nickel dime our health care. Did you say that that would only apply to part-timers? No, that will apply to everyone. But as a family plan, if you have one additional person, you're considered family. So you would have to pay 6000 up front. As a single, 3000 up front. And is that a situation your family is uh, facing right now? Or? If we allow them to go ahead with the health plan that they want to give us, that will be my situation. Uh, how many folks are in your household? I have one, me and my son. And I'm a single mom. Right. Um, so this is your only source of income, basically, and your only source of insurance, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And right now, as it stands, it's very good. Right now, you don't pay anything out of pocket or any deductible? Yeah, I pay $120 a week. So I pay like $600 a month, but with their plan, I'll have to pay 6000 What's your job uh, over there? And, you know, what are the working conditions like? Is that an issue that you also want to bring to the table? The working conditions are not bad. I work as general service. Uh, so it's called the title is general service. So pretty much I can do anything they ask me to. I can be a checker. I can go into the dish room. I can work on the line. The working conditions are fine. It's just it's this new regime at Harvard. It used to just be Harvard dining services, and it was just different. It was smaller. Now it's bigger. It's campus services. What is different about this round of negotiations? Why have you come to this point with the strike? Have they, is it, is it um, harder than in previous years to really uh, get what you need out of the talks? I think it's harder because they feel that we as Harvard employees should be grateful to have a job and that this is the, the, the new shift on health care. It's happening to everyone. So they're not doing it to us purposely, but they're trying to save on healthcare, and everyone has the same plan. We just have to come up with the 21st century, which is ridiculous because, again, Harvard is the wealthiest university in the world. You can cover that cost. And how is the community responding? How are you, how are you feeling out there oh, today? Oh, the community is responding so great to students. Never in Harvard history have the students come out for us. We got the medical students. We got the law students. We got the undergrad students. Never in the history of Harvard has that ever happened. And right now, as I'm standing here, you should see the hundreds of people. They're marching into Harvard Square. It is amazing. I also spoke with Tiffany Ten Eyck. She is an organizer with Unite Here, Local 26, which is representing the workers in the contract talks. One of the demands and the discussions that dining hot workers have been having in the university for decades now is the fact that even though their hourly wages have gone up, their overall income has gone down because of 
a lot of cuts to hours of service and lengthening of student breaks and general sort of austerity programs. So through bargaining, you know, our, our hourly wages are something like an average of like $22 an hour. So everyone often considers Harvard Dining Hall workers well-paid. But when in bargaining, the workers, the leaders are constantly talking about this, that their hours have been cut, they're, they're losing income, they can't apply for unemployment. And when you actually look at the wage and hour data that the employer gave us, it was really clear that half of the people made under 35000 And the reason why that caught on the imagination of, of the union and the um, dining hall workers is there, there's a, a particular kind of local reason why that came up, which is that there had been a, a Boston Globe article in a study that the city had done on income inequality and how Boston has is one of the most is was considered the most unequal city in a couple of studies. I think there was the Brookings Institute placed us somewhere up there. Yeah. Now, ironically, the second runner up, I think, was Yale. It was New Haven. Exactly. Yeah. So there was the Brookings Institute study that inequality and then the, the uh, city of Boston did a study that said that, you know, something like half of the workers in Boston make less than 35000 And we expected Harvard to be ahead of that. And we're really shocked when we found out that it was really clear even statistically that our members are not doing better than on average at all. Um, so that's where 35000 sort of comes from. It's both a real demand, but also a symbolic way of talking about this idea of annual income and, and having the university really come to terms with the fact that it is completely not fair to callously talk about these hourly wages when they know that this has been a problem for workers, this has been a problem for a long time, and at the same time that they're also making these concessionary demands on health care. It's, it's hard, right? We're not like low-wage workers, but we also feel like we're part of this trend of labor and community organizations trying to figure out what happens after wages go up and how you actually deal with economic instability because, you know, we've seen here at Harvard, we've been seeing this, the that we have to do something to combat that, like, getting more wage increases is not going to actually deal with people's everyday problems here. So it's been a core demand from the very beginning that we take on annual income. A university like Harvard can always find ways to manipulate the data and, like, convince people that we're wrong. But I have to say, Michelle, like, what has been so incredible on the ground here from day coming into day five tomorrow is unions always say this. I've worked on other campaigns. Like everyone supports us. I have never seen anything like this. I like, I'm not from an Ivy league background. Like Harvard students are super supportive of this right now. We've seen so much support from the students. You can check, just go to the crimson if you haven't already and look at the student newspaper, but everything from undergraduates feeding dining hall workers, a strike is having major impacts on students right now. Like I've heard reports that vegans are having a hard time finding food. Over the weekend, they just shut down three more dining halls. So half of the undergraduate residential dining halls are closed. And students are eating like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Like legitimately, Harvard University students are eating like cold bag lunches in some cases because of the strike. Yet they continue to actually be supportive, which is interesting. Like Crimson did a multimedia video of first year students like what do you think about the strike and almost all of them were supportive which actually really shocked me not what we would expect it's different here I think because Harvard has a robust residential dining program so these are students who live in these really small houses and are with the workers every single day so their connection is really deep and it goes beyond politics Um, when the uh, the undergraduate council 
voted 45 to 3 to support the strike and it included like one of the college republicans that was seen later like hanging out with jeb bush and most of these workers i assume they don't live in cambridge they live in boston all right well this is the other thing that we've been talking a lot about on this and what led to a strike here so just on demographics so the majority of um harvard dining hall workers are people of color so we mapped out where everyone lives like there's like a big chunk of workers that like grew up in Somerville and Cambridge, right around the university area. But most folks have had to leave because they can't afford to live anywhere near Harvard University anymore. And one of the big rallying things has been that two years ago when there was this huge blizzard that just devastated Boston, Harvard employees were considered essential. And they were coming in, you know, I know several leaders that live in New Hampshire. And even during the strike are driving in like, takes them two hours to get to work. And then there's another group of workers that grew up in Boston neighborhoods that are, you know, historically black, like Roxbury and Dorchester, um, that all have moved south of the city. So like when you plot out where our members live, it's it's the it's a giant geographic region that covers like it's like four hours across from north to south. We're not alone in that in terms of what's going on with working class people in Boston, but like Harvard workers, it's just like another way in which Harvard workers really are not like in this separate and better class of food service workers. They're struggling with the same things here, even though they do work for, you know, the richest university in the world. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if the fact that they're considered essential employees means that like they're sort of on call when a crisis hits the same way city employees would be, but they're not compensated nearly as well, I'm sure, in their contracts, so. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And they don't have the unemployment again, which has been a big thing that workers are talking about here. They don't get the, any of those same protections, the salary, the unemployment. The healthcare restructuring was happening to the non-union employees a couple of years ago, right? And now they're sort of going for the union employees. Is that? Yeah. So it happened both to non-union and union. You know, it started first with faculty. Harvard administration has been very clear and very public for years now that they want to get everyone on the same plan that involves dealing with rising healthcare costs, um, higher co-pays, and they did a first with faculty who agreed to eventually, though very publicly, you know, fought it, but, you know, didn't strike. <laughs> and then clerical technical workers, of which there are 4,000, agreed to some of these kinds of proposals. So in bargaining, we have very consistently, dining hall workers have been asking, you know, you can't treat us the same as any of those groups of workers. Like, we don't work year-round. Most of us don't. So we can't afford this. What is ten you know, ten dollars to us is actually a lot of money. So and there's been a lot of cynicism from the university around this. And even as we were going into strike preparations when a strike vote was announced, never changed those proposals and we have been very adamant up until more recently that, you know, our members do need to pay more copays. And like a copay of ten dollars is which is what had been the proposal all summer long is like a 60% increase. And our members have been just like absolutely adamant that they're not going to pay that money, that they can't, that they won't, um, that they shouldn't have to. That in a bargaining level, we've also been really frustrated that we're not seeing like a, a more creative solution. It's like very much a corporative solution. Like we need to cut costs by raising co-pays. But there's a lot of thinking in healthcare policy right now that that's actually not good, good healthcare policy because it drives down utilization. Basically, what you do if you take people that don't work year-round and you make all their copays more expensive, like 40 to 100 for an emergency room visit, for example, then they don't go to the doctor as often. They they question whether or not they should go, and we're fundamentally against that right now. 
And that definitely is a major part of what led to a strike here. I mean, the, the whole point of the Affordable Care Act, I guess, is to encourage preventive care. The first group of students, by the way, that got involved heavily and publicly in this were the Harvard Medical School students who um, some of them um, heard about it and they asked to like look at the healthcare plan and if they analyzed it based on what's available in the exchanges and what's considered affordable healthcare that doesn't do that. And Harvard's plan, is, depending on your income, is not affordable. The feeling of this strike has been that we have everyone but the administration on our side. So the janitorial staff, both at the rank and file level and at the leadership level, have been incredible with SEIU 32BJ. 32BJ sent out a directive to members to, you know, remind them that they, they have to go to work um, legally, but that they should stay on picket lines before and after shifts. And we've been seeing that in big groups, janitorial staff on, on lines with us. Same with clerical technical workers who've been um, out on picket lines, even though, you know, picket lines like in a strike on a campus like disrupts their work a lot. Um, it's been loud. We've been banging on plastic drums. Um, there's been chanting and singing and we've seen a lot of support from them, too. And, and faculty right now are doing a petition. And that is all the unions, right? There's a graduate student worker. Yes, they've been with us, so they would publicly talk about this, but they've absolutely been in support of this and completely understand the connection between graduate students and dining hall workers and have been very, very clear on that. Every picket line I've been at, there's been somebody with a sign that says they stand in support, and they've been very, very clear about that. You're going back to talks on Monday? Is that right? No, we um, have been in talks since, gosh, the last few days. So talks continued right the day after the strike, and there is some movement from the university, but we're still far away on our key issues. Um, so the strike will continue. You know, tomorrow we'll be, you know, we'll be holding a rally and some pickets and then every day until there's a settlement. But at this point, um, we're we're gearing up to be able to handle a, a, a strike of some length if necessary. So right now they don't get any strike pay or anything like that. You know, we're working, and that's exactly the, where the transition we're making right now. There was getting through the first week where people still had their paychecks. We will be um, putting forward strike benefits, and people have been signing in and out of picket lines with scan cards. We've made we have a barcode system, so people are walking picket lines to be able to get their strike pay, which we'll be setting up next week. And that's that's in their contract. I was just wondering if the funds are actually coming from their dues or from the university. Oh yeah, yeah. So we have a strike fund. Sorry. A few years ago, we we voted to start funding a strike fund. Um, so a portion of the dues gets earmarked for a strike fund and that the executive board voted on strike pay. And then the actual Harvard Dining Hall Workers Bargaining Committee has some oversight over the fund and how it's used. And we're also planning on starting to fundraise independently of that for a hardship assistance fund. And finally, I spoke with Annabella Pappas, who has worked for about 35 years in dining services at Harvard uh, alongside her husband for many years. Um, And she gave me an update this past week about the next steps for the strike and uh, their next big action, which is to go directly to the fellows of the Harvard Corporation, who are these big corporate and academic luminaries, to pressure them directly to uh, get Harvard to listen to what its workers are saying and also to address broader issues of inequality across campus. What's been going on in week two of the strike? And, you know, what do you what do you foresee coming up? Well, I see a lot of people, more people joining us, more students. Um, I see a lot of pictures of uncooked food um, that students are putting out on Facebook. And it's really 
amazing, like, all the stuff we're seeing. It's, like, really... The thing that's bringing us more and more together is the media, whatever, um, mostly the letters that um, that they're writing about lies, about they offer, the, they offer us this, they offer us that. But then the good thing is we have <laughs> proof. So we come back and the students come back with it. If it's so true, then where's the proof? And why are we fighting still for insurance that we can afford, health care that we can afford? I've been there for probably 35 years. And striking every day and meeting all these people from all over, students, you know, even faculty members who try to be on the hideout because they don't want to get in trouble. I actually saw Harvard for the first time. And to see people when we walking by in their windows waving and, and cheering us on, and it's been amazing. It's tiring, you know, a lot of us are tired, you know, worried about our bills, but um, it, it was worth every second of the struggle to let people know what the truth about Harvard is all about. You talked about how the university is uh, saying, you know, one thing, but you guys are definitely feeling a different situation. What do you think is the biggest thing you want to get across to the public? Well, what they're saying is, oh, we offer them good insurance. Are the departments accepted the the insurance but yeah they did accept it but they had no choice they were forced i mean they have 12 months a year of job so if anything they they can they can deal with that they'll be struggling but we're make 32,000 a year they never put the 32,000 a year there they always say why are we any different we could accept it when other departments accept it the other departments have 12 months a year job we do not Mm-hmm. And so with this insurance, if we're laid off in the summer or J term, there's no money coming in that week. We're not covered for those insurance. And that's what they need to tell the truth. The truth is those insurance, you're only covered if you work and there's money coming out of that check to pay for it weekly. And we are not a 12-month job. So tell me, how are we going to pay for that? Right. So uh, talk about how that works over the course of a year. What do you do? What's your situation? Do you work year-round or? I don't. So what happened is, what happened is, is a lot of us have real estate, which is a department at Harvard University, and then we have mill service that we can work for, or even even the build, building the ground, which is like gardening and things like that. But when we work for these departments, we are no longer considered a Harvard employee, pretty much. They say we are, but really not. We are like a temp agency. So I go from making the 21 into making $14 an hour. And what's upsetting to us is like, here we are going to these locations. You know, the managers are great. I mean, but they even say there's nothing they can do. So what happens is we go to these departments. Their employees get to go on vacation because that's the time out in the summer or whatever. And we stay and do their jobs, but we are being hired as a temp agency. It makes me wonder, well, when you're hired as a temp agency, a temp agency makes a certain percentage of the, the employer, and then the people that work for that employer get a certain percentage. So I'm wondering who's getting that money because we are rented out, really. Right. So when the administration says you make this much an hour, that's only for part of the year and the rest of the year you're making a lot less. Exactly. Talk about what uh, what's going on this week. I, I understand that, uh, well, we're talking uh, Wednesday now, but what's going on on Thursday? You're targeting the fellows? 
Harvard? Well, we are targeting the people that are behind it, the people that are the secret people that we don't hear about it because they don't want to be up out there. They don't want to be. They don't. Want, they they're they're pretty much tell everybody else to do their job, and they don't want to be recognized that these are the people involved in the money issue and the insurance issue. They bought into these insurance that they didn't even investigate enough to find out what would be the benefit of bringing it to Harvard and would everybody be able to afford these insurance. And they didn't do enough study. And now they're stuck with them. So now they're putting it on our people, the workers. And unfortunately, they put it on us. Well, we can't afford it. We just can't. It's not even like, okay, I'll struggle really hard to pay for it. it that's, that's not even an issue. We cannot. What would uh, what would the added cost for your household be? What it, what would it cost, you know, you extra per Per month? No, let's just say I wouldn't be covered for, uh, um, I don't even know if I would be covered for the summer, even even though I'm working for a Harvard department because it's a, it's a totally different department. So I don't even know if money would be coming out of that. And then for those that don't work in the summer, it wouldn't be covered. You know, in J-term, they wouldn't be covered. And out of my pocket would be I need to see specialists sometimes because of my diabetes. I'm type 1 diabetes. And that's uh, when you see specialists, it's not any longer a $15 call payment. It would, $15 call payment for, to see my physician would go to 25 And then next year would be 35 And then it would be for emergencies or anything else that you need to see a specialist, it's going to go from 15 or to $100. You said you've been there 35 years. Were you there for the last strike that they had on campus? No, I actually missed that one. I just thought that was my my dad who was, he used to work for Harvard. He was there, but it only lasted like a half hour to and not even a day. Yeah, it was a really quick one. Wow. So you guys are doing marathon things. Um, does it, um, you said you were surprised. I mean, I think um, other folks who are watching from the outside might be surprised that um, there's such uh, stark inequality at Harvard between what the top administrators are making and say what the, you know, the rank and file dining hall workers make. Um, a lot of people see this as symbolic. Um, how do you tie this into what you see going on maybe around the country as, uh, you know, not just in higher ed, but at all sorts of um, educational workplaces and um, in the food services? What do you see um, in terms of just uh, recognizing this kind of inequality everywhere? You know, I'm from Europe, so I see, you know, the hospitals there, the cost of living and how they struggle to, to survive and, and work. So it's just, you know, but we're talking about the elite, you know, Harvard University, the richest university in the world. So whenever you mention I work for Harvard University, you always see these people in Portugal where I'm from. Wow, this is awesome. You must make it's 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 the I expect it in countries in Europe, you know, it's it's hard and it's a struggle. People surviving and insurance and medical and the 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 Euro's gone. But this is United States of America. You know? This is Harvard University and we're fighting for healthcare. I do have the support of the students. They've been coming out with food and fruit. You know, they've been coming. They've been staying with us. They were told the um, law school, they have a budget that the students get, and they're using that to buy stuff for us. And they were told by the dean there that they could not, there's a letter actually going out, that that food, is, that money is not to be utilized to help us because what we're doing is not really what we should be doing in 
the students uh, today got so mad that they went out and bought even more stuff for us. They bought like 36 pizzas for all of us. Like, it's just the support has been incredible. These are the kids that know us, that see us every day. And, you know, these are the kids that we take care of when uh, they're sick. We even had a, um, an epidemic where we actually brought food to their rooms because the tutors couldn't keep up. This, these are the kids that are paying for the college intuition. These are the kids that are putting money in the, in the university's pocket. And these are the kids that are suffering right now. And that's not fair. They're suffering. Do you think it's been an eye-opener for the students as well? Um, and I guess I'm thinking, you know, a lot of people think, oh, Harvard students, what do they know about inequality? They must be the, the you know, the, the most elite of the elite um, in the country. Um, how do you, what do you hope that, that the, the folks that you serve every day learn from this as you continue to struggle on? The, the, a lot of them, they're saying, I cannot believe that this is happening to you guys. You do so much for us. It's really not fair. This is not right. The kids are upset, and they say, you know, they should, if they want to pick on, um, 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 you know, I even say, if they want to pick on us, okay, you know, they've been picking on us, but don't pick on our kids. Don't make them suffer, you know. And what they're doing, they're asking everybody in the university from other departments to come in and help serve food. But these people don't have the, the, the ability to, to serve the food or the quality of the food. We have students with special diet needs that need special care, and they're not even acknowledging that. It's like eat whatever's out there and stop complaining, and the pictures that the kids are sending to us, is it is, oh, my God, I, I'm surprised. Where's the health that would serve safe, you know? Where is all that? It's like the, it, they put a lid on everything. It's like they control everything. And I see my kids out there, and they're like, Bella, when are you coming back? This is insane. We need you. It, that's that's just, that really breaks my heart. And it's like there's so many of us out there and the students. It, it's like I feel bad for them. I feel, really feel bad. And they have sports coming up. They need to be healthy. They need to eat healthy. They have exams, finals. They shouldn't be enduring this right now. They should not. And Harvey doesn't care. Sounds like you're ready to go back to work pretty soon. (laughs) No, it's, it's, you know, I think everybody lost their voice, but, you know, we put on from morning to night, just walking around, doing what we have to do. We will keep you up to date on the latest from the Harvard strike, as always. And you can find links to Michelle's story and much more at the Descent website. You're listening to Belabored a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Arg! I wish I'd written that. Since I have teachers' unions on the brain this week, I am talking about a particular piece that made me go arg not that long ago. Actually, it was a double arg as the excellent Roz Hunter of the Nation Institute sent it my way right after we had recorded the last episode. The story is by Hella Winston at Slate with the support of the Nation Institute Investigative Fund. And of course, full disclosure for those of you who don't already know, I am a reporting fellow at the Nation Institute. And the piece is called simply How Charter Schools Bust Unions. Spoiler, it involves calling the police. 
Alicia Mernick was a teacher at a Los Angeles charter school and decided that she could do a better job of, quote, actualizing the core values of her school, not to mention get some transparency around performance assessments and how the school spends its money if she formed a union. She was leafleting outside of the school with an organizer from United Teachers Los Angeles, who we have, of course, discussed several times on this show, when she wound up face-to-face with an armed county sheriff. Her employer had already been hit with a preliminary injunction and temporary restraining order for interfering with organizing, which belabored listeners probably know is pretty exceptional considering how much employers are legally allowed to do in terms of squashing union drives. But she was still threatened with arrest. Only about 7% of charter schools are unionized compared to 68% of public schools. And as Winston writes, quote, While anti-union efforts don't always stop a union from forming, as the number of teachers in charters rises, the evidence of charter management's strong anti-union campaigns raises the specter of a two-tiered system, one in which charter teachers have to fight much harder for rights and protections for themselves and their students than their peers who teach in traditional public schools. Teachers at charter chains around the country have reported intimidation and other unfair labor practices, and the National Labor Relations Board has issued complaints. Because the charters are run by private companies and were designed in part as a way to get around existing teachers' unions, it's not that surprising that anti-union consultants play a prominent role in these battles and that the fights get nasty. Students even got roped in, Winston writes. Quote, according to Mernick, when students used to sign on to the Alliance website, Alliance is the name of the school chain, to do things like see their homework assignments, they were confronted with a pop-up ad directing them to a page of anti-union links and articles. The pop-up ads and features on the home pages of those school sites have now been removed. At a KIPP school in Brooklyn, the New York Times had reported earlier that principals had met with 7th and 8th grade students and apparently encouraged them to talk about any problems they had with their teachers. Isn't that nice? But, of course, since we were talking about the Chicago teachers' near strike earlier this episode, I should end by noting that the nation's first charter school educator strike is pending at press time, also in Chicago. The United Educators of UNO, a charter school chain, voted nearly unanimously to strike and set a potential date of October 19th. So we will keep you up to date on that as well. And my pick for this week is by George Monbiot. It is his column in The Guardian titled Neoliberalism is Creating Loneliness. That's what's wrenching society apart. So every once in a while we get one of these op-ed pieces trying to uh, dissect the psychology and the modern malaise that uh, members of society are feeling as we hurtle towards uh, you know, an era of rife with psychological distress and anxiety and all these other things. Um, but while those problems are often framed in terms of, you know, personal self-help and um, the need to uh, heal oneself personally, George Mambio takes a more systemic view and he talks about how this ties into neoliberal capitalism. And I thought it was a useful exploration of the way our current capitalist structure might be affecting our mental health on a micro level and more broadly our social dynamics on a macro level. So it's not just that we get overstressed because of work, it's that our culture of work is making us miserable and their idea of what it takes to be successful is also actively making us unhappy every day. And it's also making us lonelier as we are becoming increasingly 
alienated from one another, whether it's in the office or within our own households. So this isn't just another routine malaise of modern life, Mambio argues. It's actually a pathology of a social system that destroys humanity and profits from doing so. Mambio points out uh, how middle-class life and standards of middle-class life put perverse pressures on us to conform to rigid social norms and to dehumanize each other and ourselves in the process. He writes, quote, in Britain, men who have spent their entire lives in quadrangles, at school, at college, at the bar, in parliament, instruct us to stand at our own two feet. The education system becomes more brutally competitive by the year. Employment is a fight to the near death with a multitude of other desperate people chasing ever fewer jobs. The modern overseers of the poor ascribe individual blame to economic circumstance. Endless competitions on television feed impossible aspirations as real opportunities contract. And we can maybe draw some lessons from our current electoral system to see how reality TV uh, sadly influences our everyday realities. Neoliberalism is actually teaching us to evaluate our lives based on our economic productivity. And when we find our lives unsatisfying, we're told that uh, we just aren't correctly using the fruits of our productivity, and we're told to go out and consume and buy things and shop more. And that is ultimately how we should be redeeming our lives. And often we spend time and money on destructive things uh, to replace those things that really matter. Uh, Mamiya writes, consumerism fills the social void. Social media brings us together and drives us apart, allowing us precisely to quantify our social standing and to see that other people have more friends and followers than we do. Yes, we've all been there. He goes on to list a number of uh, mental health problems, addiction issues, etc., that are tied directly to our modern way of life, also known as capitalism. As another Guardian writer, Peter Fleming, pointed out recently, this is a systemic issue. Uh, Fleming argues, quote, our society is currently gripped by a pervasive ideology of work. It is continuously preached to us as the pinnacle of human virtue. If you're not doing superhuman stints at the office, then something is wrong with you, unquote. Um, so this analysis kind of goes beyond the usual work-life balance argument and talks about this as a public health crisis. The neoliberal formula uh, for working out these problems often to look inward, to look at therapy, to look at self-help, to look at chicken soup for the soul, to look at religion even, um, to look at uh, you know things that will teach us to be more effective or competitive human beings. But what if we talked about changing the rules of the game? It is... Um, looked more critically at how the system literally drives us to distraction and what we might do about it as a society. Perhaps this is what's behind unhealthy habits, Mambio points out, like obesity, smoking, stress-induced high blood pressure, and immune suppression, uh, in which uh, the stressors of daily life are becoming a chronic agony for so many of us. Um, if we thought about it in public health terms, perhaps, that might be a way to help resolve some of these issues on a societal level. And that's it for this episode of Belabored. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back in another two weeks. And don't forget to go to our donate page to become a supporter of Belabored. You can become a sustaining member by giving a little bit of money each month and you will get a free tote bag and other goodies. Please go to DescentMagazine.org. You can communicate with us using hashtag Belabored on Twitter or by emailing Belabored at DescentMagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>